wanted to do a quick recap of last week, and the goal of this whole series is to get some clarity and exposure to the various pieces of evidence and proof that we could have towards the veracity and the historicity and the truth of the Torah. And I think the most important uh, item that we have to ha- establish before we begin the discussion, and we mentioned this right last week and the week before, we'll mention it again today because I think it's important, is that really that there's only really two options. Uh, either the Torah was written by a human author, right, or is written by Moses, or the book is true. It's written by Moses, as per the uh, the, the dictation of God. No other option exists. Right? It's either the the story, the story the story was as it is recorded, as it, as it is documented, or uh, it's not. And then once it's not as it's documented, then 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 it's then we can argue is it maybe if Ezra wrote it, or Jeremiah wrote it, or collaboration wrote it. That's really irrelevant. Point is, is once you take it out of the status of it being divinely instructed, you know they they try to create a new category called divinely inspired, which is that it's a it's a new category, but it's really the same thing, right? It's either the way the way it's it, it itself is being uh, portrayed in the actual book, right? Moses is instructed to write the entire thing from the first word till the last word. We mentioned last week that there's a there's there's a, there's a question as to the last eight verses. But the entire Torah, basically, right? Uh, let's uh, for for a second forget about the last eight verses. But the entire, entire Torah, written by Moses, as per the direct instruction of God, and importantly, the prophecy of Moses is different with than all the other prophecies. There's only one prophet, the prophecy that it says, "Zehadavar." Uh, that's what the Talmud says. All the prophecies of all the other. Uh, of all the Nevi'im, all the other prophets, it's Koamar Hashem, so says God. As opposed to Moses, Moses is the only one who used the term Zehadavar, this is the thing, this is the item. And uh, the Talmud, various places, it explains, uh, the Talmud of the Midrash explains that Moses' perspective was very different. If you, uh, the, uh, the average prophet, the average dude, right, the, the median prophet in Jewish, in Jewish life and philosophy had what's called Aspaklaria She'inam Ira. Which means it was a certain prophecy, it was a certain vision, but it wasn't clear. How so? Uh, the way the way anyone here knows how prophecy works? You can explain it. I can yeah, explain. Please, yeah. like, like you know, we're we, you know we we're told uh, uh, you read the books of the prophets, you read the book of Ezekiel, and every other word it says, "So said God," and he, right, he quotes God and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Moses as well, and. Joshua as well, and Samuel as well. All the great prophets that we have the with the documentation of the prophecies. It seems like it's the same thing. However, there's a very grave difference between the between the prophecies. All the other prophets, aside from Moses, they saw not clearly. How? What does that mean? They had to be sleeping, and God decided whether or not He's going to give them a prophecy. It was up to God. Moses, uh, the, this prophet, couldn't just summon God. And Did also, to God or no? who was it, was it a one way communication? I don't know if it was a one-way communication, but the communication was an unclear communication. Uh, perhaps once the communication was in session, then they could respond as well. As we can see that they did respond. God and Moses talked back. Well, okay, but we talk yeah. about everyone else aside from Moses for the second, right? So the other ones came through dreams. Well, they were in the sleep. They were asleep. That's right, and they had a vision, right? They saw things metaphorically, right? Isaiah sees a floating pot, and the greatness of the, of, of of the prophet is to understand what the message is. But that's obviously not clear. And that's why the Talmud goes on to say, 
You don't have two prophets that give they have the same style, same flavor of prophecy, mm-hmm. because it has to go through a certain filter. And who's that? That's the prophet himself. Now, all the other prophets, none of them give us any mitzvahs. Important thing. We don't learn any mitzvahs in the Torah from any of the prophets. Only from Moses. And Moses' prophecy was different than any of the prophets because Moses saw clearly. God spoke to Moses. He didn't say, Toa Marashem, so says God. Rather, Zehadavar, this is the item. Moses communed to God, communicated to God, panim panim, face to face, right? The way normal humans converse, without any room for ambiguity or lack of understanding. Moses' function as being the one who teaches the Jewish people Torah and mitzvahs made it uh, necessary that his prophecy was a prophecy of absolute clarity. And that's why when he's instructed to write the Torah, it didn't have to go through any filter. It's not, it's not through Moses' eyes. Moses was just instructed, write Bereshit, he wrote Bereshit. Write Bara, he wrote Bara. Mm-hmm. So that's, and that's the traditional perspective. That's one of the options. The other option is that it was not done like that, and then, and then, it, and then it's really, it really, for our purposes, is relevant to how it was compiled, right? We just say, well, it was, a, yeah, was it compiled by one guy? Was it a bunch of, was a team? Etc. Etc. And last week, what we tried to do was begin our our um, examination of the various predictions and prophecies of the Torah that make us uh, think one way or the other whether or not this document was written by human authors or is written by uh, uh, by God via Moses. Uh, so the first thing that we looked at, just quickly to uh, to recap, was the, the first prediction was. Uh, where the Torah predicts in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that there will never be a national revelation, a national prophecy. The, not only will there never be a national prophecy, there will never be a claim of a national prophecy, which means that the foundation of the Jewish religion uh, at the at Sinai experience, everyone sees God, everyone experiences God, everyone has this tremendous level of prophecy, that will never happen again, but not only will it never happen again, it will never even be claimed. No one will ever cl- you know, uh, 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 lay claim to such a, uh, such a uh, revelation. And the, the, the idea that we tried to draw out last week was that if this story, if the book was a hoax and it was concocted by some human author, they obviously created this myth. So they obviously would know that it's possible to perpetrate uh, or to create such a myth. And then it would seem very silly for them to try to say that no one else could could, could cop and do the same thing and make such a prediction. And that prediction, like, like you say, once the prediction is proven false, the entire book is proven false. That's the first uh, insight that we had. Uh, the next one we, we said that, uh, that we have other a, a requirement in the Torah. This was more of a the boldness of a of, of the prediction is something that's very striking and would make us seem very very reluctant and hesitant to attribute it, uh, human authorship. The Torah commands us every seven years we take a year off from uh, taking care of the ground. We don't plant. We don't sow. We don't harvest. We don't uh, we don't uh, plow even nothing. Now in ancient societies we mentioned uh, they they lived and died with the agriculture and if you take a year off right. You don't, you don't have food, basically. So what are you going to do, says the Torah, if you say, how am I going to eat? And, um, and, and I quote, what shall we eat in the seventh year? I'm sorry. And if you were, will say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? Behold, we may not plan nor gather in our produce. I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce for the three years. For three years. Once again, we see a commandment with a prediction that's very unlikely that a human author will make such a prediction because if you cannot actually fulfill that pr- prediction and uh, then your, uh, your, your book or your document is exposed at being a hoax, if it were to be a hoax. 
Uh, another thing we saw last week, three times in the year, all the men should, should go visit the temple, right, during, during three holidays. What happens if uh, you leave in your field or leaving your family, leaving your towns, everything unguarded, every single capable adult man? The Torah says, uh, neither shall any man desire your land when you go up to appear before the, before the Lord your God three times during the year. The Jewish people at the beginning of their uh, of their uh, life in Israel, they had about 400 years of constant battle with their neighbors, and the prediction uh, um, or the requirement is a requirement that it's all, uh, that, a, that a sane person would not make. A sane person wouldn't say, abandon everything, and uh, and and no one will uh, and no one will even want it. You know, just leave your door open and leave your store open and just spend. Two weeks or two weeks each way potentially, and go visit. And you know, it's it's not it's not a, now. Remember, we don't have documentation of episodes of the Jewish people abandoning everything and going up to the temple. We don't have an actual documentation for that. So, therefore, I'm not telling here that we have documentation of this actually happening, but we do have documentation of the requirement for uh, for the Jews to to go that. We have later documentations of the Jewish people actually doing it, and. Uh, and 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 we could deduce from that that psychologically a a, a, a human would have made that prediction, and um, no likelihood they did follow this law. There's no reason to think they will, they would not follow this law when we have uh, records documentation of them following other laws. And uh, it seems like they didn't abandon the Torah uh, because of what would be a fatal flaw if it was of human authorship. Okay, that's what we did last week. I tried to do it a little quickly. Um, and this is where we got up to. So what we have is the Torah's distrip- description of, of military conscription. Now we know. I'm sure uh, some of us uh, know about uh, in, in Israel, there's mandatory conscription of all men and women. In fact, it's the only country in, uh, I think, 215 countries in the United Nations. Uh, every year that number changes, whether South Sudan gets split up, into, right? In Africa, it's like it, 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 it changes like with the weather, you know? The clouds move over, you have another two or three countries. Uh, so Israel is the only country in the world that has mandatory conscription of women. No other country has that, men as well. Uh, in the United States, we had, uh, we had drafts uh, very, very recently. And the Torah also had a draft. And, and I'm going to quote to you here from Deuteronomy chapter 20, I'm going to quote what the draft looks like. Listen to this, guys. When you go out to battle against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots and people greater than you, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so you don't be scared. And then they line up, a few verses later, says they line up all the people, all the, all the men, and the officer should speak to the people, saying... Which man is there that has recently built a house but has not begun to live in it? Let him go and return to his house lest he die in battle and, and another man lives in it. So the first announcement that we do, we try to whittle out. We're giving exemptions. Exemptions for military service. Who built a house but didn't actually live in the house? He should go back. You, 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 we don't, you, you don't need to go to war. Why? Because maybe you'll die in battle and someone else will... will, will uh, will we'll live in your house. Well, what, what does that mean? Let's hold that thought for a second. Continues the officers, and who is the man who has planted a vineyard but has not seen his fruit? Let him go and return to his house lest he die in battle and another man eat, use his fruits. So, build a house, plant a vineyard, 
don't live in the house, don't enjoy the fruits of the vineyard, go back home. And who is, who is the man who has betrothed a woman, but has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, let the die in battle, and another man takes her. So, if, three people who began a task, but didn't quite finish it, mm-hmm. didn't quite consummate it, so to speak, and go back, go back home. And the last thing, and the officer shall speak further to the people, and they shall say, who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest his brethren's heart melt like melt like his heart. Who is the one who's who? Who is the one who's who, who steered? You steered it all. You're shaking. Like, who remembers those great scenes in Saving Private Ryan? <laughs> right? You're shaking. You're steered it all. Right? You're worried that your animal, your enemy is going to hurt you. We don't need you. We don't, we don't need you. Now the Talmud explains this actually means who's fearful because of a sin that they had. Who's fearful of a sin? Now think about this. We have what seems to be the most impractical military conscription uh, uh, system, right? We're basically granting exemptions for anyone, right? Anyone, anyone who's steered. What do you what, what are you going to have left, right? What are you going to have left? Or people, right? Vineyards. <laughs> well, all, even the people that are fully established, but also are not at all steered, and. The idea here is that a human author, a human author, assuming that this was of human authorship, they never made such a w- well, probably because <laughs> it's it's highly impractical, suicidal. it's suicidal, right? How could you possibly have confidence in the in the patriotism of the Jewish people that you allow so many loopholes? Right? As, think about it, and, and, and there's there's a bunch of individual loopholes and then you have the massive loophole whoever's scared just leave now um, just as a side note the Talmud actually points out that that the real reason why we have this whole system just as an interesting lesson the real reason why we have this system is because who is the man who is scared of, of any sin that's the really thing that we want to get rid of but if problem is if you get up and say <clears throat> okay everyone welcome to the class who here is the scared of sins that they did and well, <laughs> just get up and walk out. Later. <laughs> right? People say, ah, oh, me. Right? As a way to save face, as a way to not embarrass the people, Everyone. they say, who was the person who built a house, or planted a vineyard, or betrothed a woman, or is steered of their sins? And that way, when someone gets up and leaves, you'll say, oh, you probably built a house or this and that. It's a way to save faces. It's a fascinating story in the Talmud. I know this is a digression, but the Talmud talks about a, um, it gives it uh, imagery, description of a Torah class. There was a teacher, and then there were students. And they were just, they were just rows and rows and rows of students. And there's once this teacher, and he, there was a student that was in the room who had consumed garlic. That's what the Talmud says. Think about this. How, how, to, how, how, Contemporary, this even sounds, mm-hmm. and he consumed garlic, and it was a terrible stench, a putrid stench of garlic. <laughs> and the rabbi announces, "Whoever consumed the garlic, please get up and leave." And then one of the great scholars that was this, was a student, he got up, and he walked out. And then everyone got up, and everyone walked out to save the guy to save face. Either way. We have, we have a description here of a practice that they would use 
the Talmud even talks about Talmud 1500 years after this document's written. It discusses in a great detail. Like I said, it gives us those lessons. Right? This was the way they, that, that they actually engaged in military construction. Do we have any historical accounts of how difficult it was for the Jews to staff an army? Or the excusal? I mean, do we have any accounts of like how tough it was to actually comply with this and have an able-bodied military? Who was that that uh, put everybody through the test of drinking water? Oh, well, that happened. Not, that happened several times. That happened with Moses. Okay. Uh, Moses, he put them to drink the water to see. Uh, well, there was Moses with the with the sin of the golden calf, and then it was I think Joshua. Okay, Joshua. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we do have accounts of 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 these. But remember, we have accounts of the military battles. Another great another great example. Uh, you open the book of Joshua. Now remember, book of Joshua. There's always we have to in our heads. We have to separate the five books of Moses from the book of Joshua. Like we said, the nature of the prophecy of Moses was different. Right? The Talmud says that we didn't even need uh, we didn't even need the rest of the books of the prophets. We didn't need them. We only they're only there because they're lessons. They're the timeless lessons that we can still use today. But from a Jewish law and Jewish life and Jewish practice, Jewish philosophy, Jewish theology and Jewish perspective and everything, we, the Torah is enough. Plus the book of Joshua, because the book of Joshua delineates where in Israel every group gets their tract of land. But besides for that, we don't need the whole story. So there's, yes, it's nice for us to have this, this history. But we have to separate the book of Joshua from the book of Deuteronomy, right? The, the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Bereshishmos, now the book of Joshua talks about the battles that they had, the battle, the battle of, of Ai and the battle of Yericho. Remember the surrounding the city, they go around seven times, and the seventh time they go seven seventh day they go seven times, and then they blow the chauffeur and the wall falls. Right? That's the description of of uh, and we, we know who these people were, we know their names, and we could date them. We could date them, we have uh, I, I accounts. Just, I, I'm sorry, I just don't remember. Was he the one who uh, uh, basically excused anybody who drank from uh, the water like an animal and, and uh, Kept the ones who used their hand to cup the water, and they became the fighters. They became the army. Um, I, I, you know, I can't. It's I don't remember that. That I, what I do remember is where the, he had the. I'll check it out. He he had some of the Gentiles consume some of the indigenous Gentiles consume the water, and they had certain reactions. Either way, uh, either way, what happens if you have an unpopular war? Lord knows, in America, we know what unpopular wars are. You have an unpopular war. You're going to say, <clears throat> anyone who steered, it's impractical. It's something that uh, the genius human author, and if, if there's a human author to the Torah, he has to be a genius, wouldn't come up with. Um, but if God wrote this, and God says, listen, I could assure you a victory. There's nothing compared to the might of God. Like if God wants a victory, He'll give you the victory. And if your victory is dependent on people being uh, adhering to the Torah and and following their leaders and and being serious about their own personal growth, well, then they'll be victorious, irrespective of how many people say I'm scared and I'm out. You know, and I, I think we could. I, I know this is a little bit uh, platitudinal, but you know, if you look at the is the War of Independence uh, in 1948. You see that the, is the Jews and the Israelis are not governed by the normal probabilities of victory in war. You know, uh, Israel was a ragtag army. There was only six hundred thousand Jews in Israel, and they were mighty, mighty. Israel didn't have nothing. They didn't have they, had, they they were they were dealing with 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 old equipment. Uh, they were dealing with a lot of Holocaust survivors were there, uh, and they they were the, a nascent 
nation. And they were at the brink of destruction. They were surrounded by five mighty Arab armies. And you read the, read the stories. Read the stories about the Six Day War. What was going on before the Six Day War? Nasser promised, we, we, in May 27th, 1967, right? Only uh, like a week, and, a week and two days before the beginning of the Six Day War, he says, Our goal is the destruction of the, pushing them into the sea, destroying the, right? The Mediterranean Sea is right there. And they took him seriously. Every foreigner that was that was in Israel got up and said, "I'm out. I'm going back to Switzerland." I know my grandfather. My grandfather had his books. He says everyone thought that everyone thought they were going to die. Really, that's what they, they took his books, like his writings, his memoirs. He was living in a, in a moshav in, in his yeshiva. It was a moshav. He sent his books to Switzerland. At least, like his his memoirs would remain intact, you know. After this country has been devastated, nineteen years after its founding, we think of Israel today. Israel is a superpower, and they have the American support. They don't have any American support. They don't any American uh, uh, weaponry. All they had was the the French French uh, French. Uh, uh, they did, they gave him military. American military come to years later, and in public parks, this is a fascinating factoid. In public parks. In Israel, they dug over ten thousand graves. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what the, what the state of morale is in Israel if you go out and you see in every park there's just tons of graves, expecting just mass mass slaughter. They, and they dug the graves. Before they dug the, the graves before that. Yes, I read that. Mm-hmm. Tremendous book, by the way. Six Days of War, the best book, the best single volume book written. Can you imagine? Mm-hmm. But what, what does that do to the morale of the people? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That everybody's going to be going up. Yeah, and they just dug mass graves everywhere. 10,000 all across Israel because there's going to be so much dead with the bear them quickly. Right? Just, yeah. that, that was the attitude. And then like that, on a dime, right? they, they destroyed, in, in, in 10 minutes, they destroyed the entirety of the Egyptian Air Force. And then they did it to the Syrians, right? What they do, <laughs> I'm sure you guys know the story. Do you guys know the story? They knew that the Egyptian army, they go for a coffee break at 8.15, mm-hmm. Right? And when they flew, they sent the entirety of Israeli Air Force. They didn't leave any planes protecting the land. It was like the ultimate all-in. You know when you push the chips in? <laughs> all-in! They took every single plane, and they just said, we are going to bomb them. First, we're going to bomb all the airports, all the, all, all the, all the runways. Then we're going to bomb all the, all the planes. And one after another, they bombed every single one, and, and like that. Like 700 air, airplanes, like that, up in flames in minutes. That's it. And then, like that, uh, and that they, they got all of Sinai, they got the Golan, they got the old city, they took their land and they, they, they multiplied it tenfold. And look at that. And, and yes, we, us Jews, have never been bound by the normal rules of, of, of combat. We, we don't. Because we, don't. we have the Almighty watching over us. And that's what, that's what it always was like that. The Torah says, yes. The Torah says, listen, <laughs> We don't. We, someone, someone's scared of fighting. We don't need him. We have God on our side. Once you have God on your side, you, you, who are you scared of? Yeah. Well, and God tells you your success and failure in war is linked to your conduct. It, it always was and always has been. You know. But that's what Hamas no said that uh, that uh, we have this God that they can win our God. So it is still. It, it, those words that you just say mm-hmm. is like now. Yeah, and, and, and that's an interesting thing. We we have a temporary perspective on that yeah. as well. I think today, like it's 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 inconceivable that three thousand years ago, hi, three 
3,000 years ago, the, uh, the someone rationally, someone rational with, with, with some intelligence would create this system of military conscription. Let's move on. So we're starting a new item right now. Okay. So that's the thing we find in the Torah, and that should make us greatly question the, uh, the possibility of, of human authorship of the Torah. Next thing, we're going to see a few other predictions in the Torah, which once again uh, are things that we probably know them, we're probably quite famous. I think the military conscription, it's maybe not so well known, but these are, fa- are very, very well known, and lots of catchphrases that are associated with these predictions in the Torah. Yes. Well, in Israel, in, in well, the state of Israel today, they don't have Torah law as as the, the law of the land. Uh, I think that's going to change. You know, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, uh, that was the chief rabbi of Israel for 10 years, 1963 to 1973, he tried to petition to try to have, listen, we're, we're a Jewish country, we're a Jewish nation. Uh, that's, you know, why, do, why are we following English common law? You know, what well, we could follow the Torah. And I, I think that it's 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 a bit, it's a bit changed, but it's really not that big, you know. It's uh, uh, we're not talking about reestablishing a death penalty or anything like that. We're talking about just you know just the law of the land. You know what's in the, the, absence of the temple? Is a lot of laws. A lot of laws don't apply. That's right. Mm-hmm. For example, like the any 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 capital capital crime would not apply because it only applies when you have a Sanhedrin actually that. residing in uh, at the temple. So we don't have that, but we could do. I'm saying we could still have that. And so yes, it's it's a thing that I think the momentum. It's kind of like the Redskins name, you know, like there's such a big push to change the name. <laughs> so like eventually it's going to happen, probably, right? You know, eventually it's going to happen probably within the next 50 years when there's a, enough of a, uh, you know, uh, enough of a feeling in the country that it's time, you know? Um, wasn't last week's first shot that um, if a child misbehaves, and the parents can't take any more responsibility. They take it to the Sanhedrin, and then they stone them to death. Would that be part of the? the <laughs> so you're talking about the. That has the, nothing to do with the temple. Okay. Well. Okay. So you're you're referencing the wayward and rebellious son, Ben Soreo More, and that's uh that's, that was just last week. That's right. And that, in fact, even during the time of the temple, never happened. The Talmud actually declares mm-hmm. that Lo Haya. Which means it never was. If a low it never will be. The, 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 the um, uh, I think it's in Deuteronomy, like chapter twenty-three. I think it is. It talks about uh, when a child, when a when a when a, when a man has a wayward and rebellious son, doesn't listen to his parents, and he eats a certain amount of meat and drinks a certain amount of wine, and he steals and whatever, and then they they, they bring him and they stone him. Well, first, first, they, they have no control and they keep Okay, but that, but that the Talmud already declares it never happened. It's a certain lesson. That that that, that there's a certain lesson. There's so many. Criteria qualifications that actually have to be so many boxes that need to be checked that it's actually implausible for it to actually happen. The Talmud already says it never happened, never will happen. So why is it written? It's written for the lessons. So none of the stoning will come back. Well, I didn't say that. I said that. I, I didn't say that. For the wayward son. The for the wayward son. Yes. Yeah. I'm saying. I've been saying for the past I don't know how many months all the different forms of capital punishment for every crime conceivable, and there's very maybe different class, but it's very different levels of. Everything you do has different levels of punishment. They they pour molten lead down your throat. They throw these heavy stones on your chest. These punishments are really uh, uh, detailed. Everything did they happen, happen though? Yeah. Did well, they? the Talmud outlines the various uh, 
forms of execution, just like you might have like a firing squad versus an electric chair versus lethal yeah. injection, like we have that in America. Mm-hmm. This the, the Torah outlines four different kinds of, of punishment for different degrees of sin. But remember, this is always important, that the Talmud also says that it almost never happens, very rare. Why? Because all the laws are, are, are dedicated to try to not to try to find acquittal for the defendants, with the exception of, of a murderer. Murder is treated differently because a murder is actually a menace to society. Uh, so that's why a murder, even if, a, if even if there's a technicality that would prevent the execution of murder, we usually incarcerate them. We might even uh, actually execute them in a uh, you know in in a way that doesn't infringe upon the Torah's rigid requirements of. Of, of the ju- judicial procedure that's necessary to, f- to have an execution. Uh, the Talmud declares, uh, this is in a different book that I want to learn with Josh after we finish this one. I already have plans. We go um, slow and steady. We go slow and steady, right. Uh, the, the Talmud declares in the end of tractate, of uh, the first chapter of, of the book of Makot, which is the natural, the one right comes right after St. Angelo, we're learning, it says that there's a disagreement between the two of the great rabbis as to how often should a court actually execute. One opinion says one every seven, once, once every seven years, and once every, oh, the other opinion says once every 70 years. Now, for reference, in the, in the state of uh, Texas, they do like 500 a year. So you're more likely to be executed in Texas than you would be on, in, yeah. But yes, the, the Torah does believe in, in, in the death penalty. That, that much is not uh, up for debate. Either way, let's move on to the next, the next prediction the Torah makes. And this is something that we're all familiar with, and that's the idea of e- an eternal nation. Who, everyone here heard of the term eternal nation? No? Everyone? You heard it? Okay. And that is that the Torah predicts multiple times that the Jewish people are here and are here to stay. And they're here to stay for how long? Forever. And the first time we find that is in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 17, it has what's called the Brit Ben Abisarim, the first covenant that we have. It's it got God and Abraham. Abraham, the whole idea of chosen nation, right? God says, Your descendants will be my people. They'll get the land of Israel. That's the time where the Bible mm-hmm. tells the promise to the land of Israel. The first time it says that we'll get the land of Israel. It says it multiple times after that, but it's the first time. And then it also makes the promise of an eternal nation. And I quote. And I will establish my covenant. Covenant means like a treaty or a pact between me and you. This is God talking. And your descendants after you throughout the generations. An eternal covenant to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So the Torah is uh, predicting that God, or Torah is, uh, uh, um, Torah is uh, telling that God made this, made this statement that the Jewish people were around forever. That's in one in Genesis and in Leviticus, we find the same idea. Is that the Jewish people in the land of Israel, or the Jewish people in general? They no, 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 no. Uh, it says that it says that they'll have Israel as well, but then it specifically mentions that you will lose Israel. We'll get to that a little bit later today. Also, it talks about you'll have Israel, you'll be kicked out. In fact, it says you'll, the land will spit you out of Israel, <laughs> and then but then I'll bring you back. And we'll get to that a little bit. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. That's what it says in Genesis. We will be in a troll nation. Uh, additionally, in Leviticus, this is chapter 26. If you want to know all, all the verses or anything that I quote today and you want to uh, find out the exact location, actually look it up inside. Just email me or text me or Twitter me or whatever. Yet even so, even while they are in their enemy's land, I will not reject them or spurn them, lest by wiping them out I may void my covenant with them. So God is saying that even when their Jewish people are in their enemy's land and I'm really fed up with them, I cannot destroy them. Why? Because then I will... I will recant or I will uh, repudiate, I will go against my, my promise that I made to Abraham. 
For I, for I am their God, I will remember them because of the covenant I made with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt under the very eyes of the Gentiles that I might be their God. So once again, God's, God's saying that even when the Jewish people, as far as they get away from, from God and from Judaism, from Torah and from their mission, they will still be a distinct nation and they uh, will not disappear. And in fact, what we find is that the closer Jewish people get to assimilation and losing their identity as being a distinct nation, uh, and the more uh, closer they get to the Gentiles, we always have a certain uprising of anti-Semitism. You know, there was no place where the Jews were more integrated uh, in history. In history. So all 3,000 years of Jewish history, there's no place in time where the Jewish people were more integrated into society than in Germany at the turn of the of, 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 of last century. Well, the idea being, uh, and this is a whole other class, but the idea being, and the Torah says that, that because the Jewish people are at risk of disappearing, and we know the history of nations, and it's been proven again and again, when they get absorbed by a different nation, or when they get exiled to a different nation, or when they get overrun by a certain ideology of a different nation, they lose their distinctness, and they disappear. It might take a few hundred years, but they disappear. There's no more Mamelukes out there, right? There's no more Byzantines, right? There's no more Persians. Why? Where are they? They're gone. What happened to them? They were a nation. They were cultured. They were, they were distinct. They had everything over. Where are, the, where are the Greeks and the ancient Romans? They're gone. Why are they all gone? Because that's what happens with societies, with civilizations, with communities. They disappear. How do they disappear? either they get absorbed, they get overrun, or they, they lose their distinctness. However that happens, they lose their distinctness. We are, we're told that our distinctness will remain forever. Now, if we are at risk to do that, right? if we are deliberately trying to shed ourselves of our own Jewish identity, then what happens is, and this is not me talking, this is the Torah talking, and this is history talking, is that there's a certain enmity that is inflared by the Gentiles against the Jews, an irrational enmity, because anti-Semitism doesn't make any sense, there's no logical explanation. All you have is excuses, right? You have multiple different reasons, quote-unquote, but they're not real reasons because they're excuses. And in fact, how do we know that they're not causing anti-Semitism? Because anti-Semitism is ubiquitous. Anti-Semitism is even where all the purported reasons for anti-Semitism are not found, you still find anti-Semitism. And the Torah says the reason why we have anti-Semitism is to ensure the Jewish people will maintain their status as an eternal nation. Say, say that more time. Say that really quick. I'm sorry. <coughs> the reason why anti-Semitism is to maintain the Jewish people, is that what you That's exactly what it said. And, it's on the Torah. Yes. Yes. In what context does it say that? Well, it, 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 it says, I'll, I'll quote a little later on, but it, it well, it doesn't say specifically it doesn't spell it out as clearly as I did, uh, but the philosophy that I uh, that I presented, which is a Jewish philosophy from time immemorial, is that the Gentile hate of Jews is a safety method to ensure that Jewish people don't become like the Gentiles and assimilate. Because the second that happens, we lose our distinctness as, as being God's people. Right? God's control, not control, but just fulfilling His promise. So God creates anti-Semitism as a incentive for as Well, the idea being is that when the Jewish people reject their uniqueness and they're at a a tipping point where they will totally uh, cease being Jewish and be no different than everyone else, then the Gentiles say, oh, you are very different. 
And no, you can't marry Gentiles like we had the Nuremberg Laws in 1935. Oh, and we can't shop in a Jewish shop. What do you mean? The Jews are the pillars of society. The Jews are all the lawyers and all the, uh, the, all the professors and all the dentists. All the people high society were Jews. And they were no different. They didn't, they weren't, they didn't dress weird. They didn't talk funny. They were, they were integrated. Where did this all come from? Well, in Jewish society, we say it come, in Jewish philosophy, we say it comes from God. Fulfilling his promise. And sometimes fulfilling a promise is not always pleasant. It's not pleasant. But that's the reality that, what, that, had, to, that had to be uh, perpetuated. And yes, there's two ways for us to be, uh, to be assured of our, uh, um, uh, our remaining a distinct nation for eternity. Either we could decide to live by the Torah and to fulfill the Jewish national mission of being a light to the nation, of being the moral guardians of the world, and then we're distinct because the whole world looks up to us, and you know we're, we're, we're the standard bearers of God in the world. That's one way for us to do it. Or we could decide, if we wanted, to be like the Gentiles or to be not distinct at all, and then the Gentiles will force us. They'll say, you got to wear a patch. You wear a patch. You're distinct. But why are you distinct? You, the, the end result's the same. We're distinct. But you'd rather be distinct in you know, the best way possible than in the worst pa- ways pa- way possible. Well, oh, listen. The Germans almost annihilated. No, the no, 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 no. I, I think it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake for us to think that. I don't want to get the. We have a. I, 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 my brother will refuse to talk about Holocaust and stuff yeah, like that. Not me. I talk about Holocaust because I, you know, I would, just, we could talk about it. But I'm saying. Contrary to what you're saying, Jimmy. No, why am I saying? That? I'm saying. I think it's wrong for us to think. Oh, it's no. well. It's, it's compressing. It's compressing uh, uh, the Jews into a sort of a unified whole. What's left is. Uh, What's left? Yeah. Compressing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Compressing the essence. In effect. The point is that there's more danger to assim- from assimilation than there is to being almost wiped out in terms of. Uh, the I thought that's where Yaakov was going. So. Yeah. I mean, is that pretty much correct? Uh. I think that's it's it's just a um, I think it's it's more of the semantics of how exactly I'm going to say it I don't know exactly oh, I'll, let me tell you what I'll say I think that we know that uh, in the 18 the 19th century was probably the worst century for the Jewish people of the past two, uh, probably in history you know uh, you could talk about the macro trends of the 19th century and the emancipation and what it meant for the Jewish people to finally be allowed to do things that they were banned for and they, you know, their marginalization, a thousand years of marginalization, economic and social and political marginalization the Jewish people uh, had experienced in Europe ended abruptly with the French Revolution that eventually swept throughout, the, throughout Europe. And what happened was disastrous for the Jewish people um, in that you have a quarter million Jews, a quarter of a million, 250,000, an enormous number of Jews convert to Christianity. Right? We have uh, Karl Marx is a kind of a famous Jew who was Jewish but converted to Christianity. Uh, and he was one, Benjamin Disraeli is another one, uh, famous Jews that uh, converted to Christianity. That was a huge trend in the 19th century. Uh, and there were these, uh, there was mass uh, rejection of Judaism. Now, today what we have is mass ignorance of Judaism. What we had then was mass rejection and blatant public rejection of Judaism and uh, derision of Judaism. And uh, it was the worst century by far, uh, uh, if you, just from, from the Jewish perspective. 
Uh, ironically, it wasn't really wasn't that bad, uh, or at least comparatively to the other centuries, with regards to the physical uh, torture and, and and persecution wasn't as bad. Uh, but what you find is, oh, uh, what you find is that the Jewish people, like I said, they rejected Judaism. Uh, there was an episode uh, with Rabbi Israel Salanter. It's a name we've mentioned a few times. Rabbi Israel Salanter was one of the key Jewish figures in the 19th century. He, in fact, in the in 1857, moved to Germany. In Germany to move to Germany was like from someone uh, someone who lived in Jerusalem, like like in the old city, like just basking in spirituality to move to like Las Vegas, the strip, you know, like in a disco there. Like that was what it was like to move to Germany. And he moved there to try to help, you know, curb the tide of Jewish rejection of Judaism. Either way, in 1844, there was, this is just how I'm presenting the story. In 1844, in Brunswick, Germany, there was a conference. And this conference, there was a bunch of Jews, but Jews that were rejecting Judaism, and they kind of like declared that all the laws of the Torah were null and void and uh, they declared uh, that uh, one need not marry Jewish and uh, laws of kosher are out the door and laws of Shabbat are out the door everything was out the door everything was uh, rejected was repudiated and we don't, we don't find this, this is a historically you don't even find like this uh, uh, mass rejection you find individuals, but either way, Rabbi Salanter commented. He says the Jewish people in Brunswick, in Germany, have uh, have thrown away the Shulchan Aruch. What's a Shulchan Aruch? Shulchan Aruch is the book of Jewish law. There's going to come a time where the Gentiles will reestablish, will force the Jews to reaccept the Shulchan Aruch. And about ninety years later, it was actually. Uh, uh, 91 years later was the Nuremberg Laws. And what the Nuremberg Laws wa- were was they made a German law where the Jews can marry Gentiles. You know, that was a law. That was a law in, in, in Germany. So the idea being, I don't want to get too sidetracked, and exactly what I'm trying to say. I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say. I have to think about it. But the idea being, my, my point that I'm, that I'm making, that's not my point. That's why I'm trying to give you a little perspective of where I got it from. That when the Jews try to lose their distinct identity as Jews, right? Something from the Gentiles is awakened that that compels the Jews to once again be di- different and distinct and be an eternal nation. And that's a that's a Jewish perspective on anti-Semitism. Uh, but either way, the Jewish people uh, were told in the Torah multiple times, as I quoted once from Genesis and once from Leviticus, where the Jews are promised that they will be an eternal nation, and, I, and God says, "I won't destroy them because then, if I destroy them, then I'm 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 going against, I'm reneging my vow of Jewish people being an eternal nation." He never said they would be numerous, though, just eternal. What do you say? I said he never said they would be numerous, just eternal. Who the Jewish people? Yeah. We'll get to that exactly. Yeah. Hold that thought, because that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna, that's gonna be a very a very uh, germane point. Nice. Ah. <laughs> uh, we have other places uh, all over. We have a, a book of Isaiah, the book of Malachi. I am God. Uh, you are the children of Jacob. I, I will not change. We have uh, also an Isaiah. Uh, 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 that they once again. This idea is you find in many many places in the Torah. The Jewish people uh, people uh, will be in the Torah nation. Now the idea of the Torah nation is really not that rare. We have the Chinese, for example, that kind of existed in the same uh, culture. Uh, pretty much with you know the same location, the same language for thousands of years, and they they are what could be considered as an eternal nation now. But if you analyze, 
the difference is there's several major differences between us and the Chinese. Number one, they have they never been. It's pretty funny. Um, number one, you find that they have existed for millennia, but they've existed with a in in one land. They were never exiled to a different land. And in fact, if anyone did come and and anyone did conquer them, they would just get absorbed because they're so big. Like if all of us came and conquered China, mm-hmm. right, we wouldn't move the needle. Right? There's too many people. As opposed to the Jewish people were always few in number. And in fact, as Roy mentioned, the Torah promises, the Torah foretells that the Jewish people will also always remain few in number. We'll get to that in a second. The Jewish people also did not have a common spoken language. Over the, you know, you go to yeshivas in Israel today, you see people speaking French, people speaking Spanish, people speaking Russian. <laughs> you have people speaking Polish. Every nation, every language on the sun, Portuguese, I see guys learning Portuguese. Jewish people, even till today, we are all spread across, across the world, even though we're kind of reuniting slowly back in Israel. We don't have common culture. We don't have uh, customs, and yet we're around for two thousand years. The Torah foretells that we'll be around for two thousand years, uh, and against all odds, we're still here. But wait a minute: is there any other factors that could have contributed to us not being here, and that would make our existence as an eternal nation all that more remarkable? So, I wanted to share with you guys an insight. Exile, the term exile, is a, is a term that we are all too familiar with as Jews. Why? Because the Jewish people have been exiled multiple times. Now, in all of human history, no other nation has been exiled more than once. And do you know why? No other nation has been exiled more than once? Because that's all it takes. Because that's all it takes, exactly. <laughs> once a nation is exiled, right, they lose... <laughs> Their, their land, they lose their identity, they lose some of their cultures, they get absorbed, and before you know it, there's what's called as the melting pot, as we know today, melting pot, it's a very it's a, a term that we use a lot in with American absorption of immigrants, and before you know it, they're indistinguishable from re- regular Americans. Yeah, but even no, but no, but you know, you're thinking about maybe let's say people of Latino descent, yeah. but 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 you have to give them some time, right? Think about the Russian immigrants of the 1880s. You can't they tell any difference. Pretty quickly, well, and the Italians of the early 19th, uh, 20th no, I century. I still think they've absorbed. I mean, we're going generations now, not one. I was at the Texans games on Sun on Sunday, and they were all into the Texans. I saw some uh, people of uh, Latino descent, and they were all into it. Screaming Houston, Texans. <laughs> one thing is a citizenship; the other one is the religion. Either way, the the point is like this: when a nation gets a, when when people move out of their land and out of their country and out of their customs, right, and they don't have that unification. So yes, it takes a while, but eventually they get absorbed by their nations, and especially we're talking about millennia. Mm-hmm. And the Jewish people were exiled not once, but twice. Depends how you count exiles, but we know in Babylon, right? The Babylonian exile. You could Google it. We have documentation. We have external verification. We know the people, the names of the people. Nebuchadnezzar came, destroys the temple, sends those old Jewish people to Babylon, and they're there for years and years. They come back to Israel the first time. They rebuild the temple. They're there for hundreds of years. The Romans come, 
and the Romans destroy the temple, and they send the Jews also to scatter across the entire globe, North Africa, all over Europe, and but primarily uh, at, um, east to, 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 to you know to uh, near east to to, to 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 Babylon and Persia, and we're there for thousands of years, and the Jewish people in 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 Yemen. In Yemen, it's a great, great example because Yemen, there's really no crossover between them and uh, any, any other. Any, there was really no crossover between them and any other Jewish uh, community, and they were there for 2,400 years after the destruction of the first temple, and they're still there. And in, in, in 1950, they had these airlifts of these Yemenite Jews, and these were Jews that had no exposure to any other Jewish community. You know the 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 Talmuds. When the Talmud was written in, in Babylon, you know I, I I told someone this. I gave us a you know like if you ever go on like University of Phoenix, everyone knows the University of Phoenix is yeah. <laughs> like the online. Uh, so um, if you ever actually go to actually participate in one of their programs, you sign up online, and then two days later you get in the mail like a box of books, you know because the books that you use to, right? That's what happened in Yemen. The Talmud is written in Babylon, right? Hundreds of miles away, right? But really, like, more than hundreds of miles. first hundreds of miles is one day of driving. But, like, for them, it's just, you know, it's just the other end of the world. And they got boxes of Talmud. And they, got re- they, just, and they just, you know, they were able... And, and you look at them 2,000 years later. They came to Israel. And they brought their Torahs. And they brought their... And they're identical Jews. They're the same thing. You know, the Jewish people, they have, we have survived across all different places, across different continents, and uh, despite being treated very, very poorly. The yeah. most tribes were the Israel. What about them? That's another one. That, uh, well, what, what, what do we know about the lost tribes? We don't know anything about them. Well, the Bnei Israel, the one from India. Oh, please. We know. There's so many people that are claiming to be the, the ten no, tribes. But they had the, no, but they had the... Okay, but the Bene Israel, they, they had the... They, they prayed and they had the Torah and all that. So what Malta is referencing is something that Josh and I will get to in a few uh, weeks or maybe months. <laughs> At the end of the book, Sanhedrin talks about these ten tribes that were exiled um, also from Babylon, but way earlier, 100 and some odd years before the temple was actually destroyed. Uh, by Sancheirev, right? Sancheirev. In fact, Sancheirev is like a name that we have in Jewish, in Jewish uh, life and um, and writings, and in, and in the British Museum, they actually have inscriptions from this guy Sancheirev. That's we actually have real um, uh, material remains that quote this guy Sancheirev and his plans, and it's like there'll be bloodshed, and we're gonna destroy everyone, we're destroy Jerusalem. He actually didn't actually quite conquer Jerusalem, but we have his projections of his uh, his plans to destroy Jerusalem, but he actually didn't. Uh, but the idea being, uh, so oh, so the ten tribes, they're gone. We have no idea where they are. They're never coming back, probably. Well, Talmud is a debate. Well, they're coming back, but they're not coming back, but probably they're not coming back. There are, some people say that the Ethiopians are them, and some people say that we found them in Nepal, and and you know you, there's lots Ugandas of Ugandas diff- have Jews. I, mean, I don't know about Uganda. My, my sister, my daughter went there. Yeah, had they Hanukkah cl- with Ugandan Jews. Well, they cl- well, they, but that Ugandan Jews doesn't mean that those are the ten lost tribes. I don't know that they were lost tribes, but they were right. But we're talking, we're talking about Uganda, there was there was a there was a there was very, a very very dark people that really live like no, I'm African saying African people, but they they observe Torah. Okay, so there's all these all these accounts of all these people mm-hmm. that yeah, observe the Torah. Schwartz, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> uh, either way, um, um, so I don't know about the ten tribes, but what we have is a prediction, and a prediction that 
is something that is unprecedented in human history. It's never happened. And there's so many factors that are also all predicted. This is an important point. The Torah not only predicts that we will remain an eternal nation, the Torah also predicts that we will be exiled multiple times. Right? And I'll just give a quote here. You will be torn from the land that, you're about, that you are about to occupy, and God shall scatter you among all the people from one of the earth to the other. You'll be scattered everywhere. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone whom you and your fathers are not known. And then, and this is by the way what I mentioned earlier, that after it says that the Jewish people will start living like the Gentiles, then it talks about the Gentile anti-Semitism. So it says over here, uh, and there you will serve other gods of wood and stone whom you and your father have not known. So you're rejecting God. And among those nations you will find no repose, not a foot in ground shall stand upon you. And there the Lord your God will give you an anguished heart and wasted eyes and a dismayed spirit. And there it continues, uh, you will live in constant suspense and stand in dread both day and night, never sure of your existence. In the morning you will say, what uh, would that it were evening? And in the evening you will say, I can't wait till the morning. For the dread of your heart you must feel, and the sight in your eyes you must see. What it's talking about is a very, very bad situation that's going to happen to the Jews in their, uh, other people's lands when they reject Judaism. So that's the textual basis for that, for that philosophy. But either way, the Torah is making multiple interconnected predictions. Number one, it's saying you're going to be an eternal nation, and it repeats that multiple times. Number two, it says, not only will you be around forever, but you're also going to be scattered across the globe. Number three, this is what we mentioned, what Roy mentioned. This is from, also Deuteronomy 28. And you shall remain few in number. Yes, it says this. So what it says here, whereas you could have become as numerous in the, in the stars of the heaven, because you did not, did not obey the voice of, of the Lord your God. Yes, and and then there's one verse, by the way, that pulls it all together. The multiple predictions. God will then scatter you among the nations, and only a small number will remain among the nations where God you sh- shall. Uh, uh, only one will remain among the nations where God shall lead you. So what it's saying is, you'll be scattered. You'll be small number. Yet the original prediction of of you being eternal that remains. So think about this prediction. We have. We have a book, a document that was clearly written before then this happened. Because remember, we have this in Gentile hands already 2,300 years ago. The Septuagint, I'm sure we all know, the Greek translation of the Torah, the first time the Torah has been in Gentile hands, is already 2,300 years old. So we, we have at least external verification of this, but we know that it was a big deal even before that, otherwise it wouldn't have made the big deal to have it try to translate it, and we know it's a very bad thing, right? So it's already been Gentile hands for that long, and the, and the predictions are there, and we see every 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 element of this prediction is predicted multiple times. We'll be an eternal nation, despite being few in number. Don't think we'll overwhelm them as if like 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 like, like the Chinese, right? We're not going to overwhelm anyone. We'll be oppressed and we'll be scattered. Yet we'll, we will remain uh, eternal. So it's a prediction that is it, it's multi-layered, and it all it's all true. And in, in hindsight, we can see this all true. And we have the 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 the, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls that are two thousand year old documents, and the same predictions are all there. Right? It's all there. And now, in hindsight, it's so easy for us to see that these predictions all came true. You know, you think about how how uh, how small a number. So we we think of the Jews as being a big deal. You know, you look at 
the Forbes 500 list, and you see, oh, the Jews, yeah, they did pretty well for themselves. You know, Jews are everywhere. And uh, you look at the uh, 22% of all Nobel Prize winners are Jewish, which is a remarkable figure, especially when you count the Jewish people about 0.2% of the population. So we're overrepresented by 22,000%. Think about it. It's, it's, it's incredible, right? And uh, the staggeringness of this, of this idea is... You know, in the year 2000, is one of my favorite factoids, one of my favorite pieces of information outside of Torah. During the year 2000, as we do in the United States, they made they made a census in in China. A census, you want to count the people, get a sense of how many people actually live there. And every census has within it a margin of error. You know, because it's plus or minus three percent. What was the margin of error? What was the margin of error? of the Chinese census of the year 2000. There was 48 million people. So the number could have been either plus 48 million or minus 48 million. So think about that. The entire Jewish nation, the entire state of Israel, fits into the margin of error of, of, uh, of, the, uh, of, of the Chinese 16 times. Right? Because 6 divided by 96, 96 million divided by 6. There's 16 Israels in the margin of error of, of, the, of the Chinese. And, and yet we make such a big, we make, we make such a big uh, uh, voice for ourselves. And we, you know, we, we, we are what the Jewish people, what the world looks for, what's for leadership. And, that, and that's the idea of, of aligning to the nation. That despite that we'll be small, despite the fact that we'll be small and we'll be persecuted and we'll be hated and we'll be scattered and we'll be around forever and we'll still be distinct and special. Now, I want to just say another point because it's timely. We still have some more time. Um, you know, we, we, we have the upcoming holiday of Yom Kippur. And our sages tell us that Yom Kippur, well, the, the Torah tells us that Yom Kippur is a day of atonement, the day of forgiveness. God's forgiving us for our sins. On this day, reads the verse, on this day, God will atone for us. God will purify us from all our sins. Because we're, we're close to God. Close to God, you shall become pure. Lift Nash empty Torah. Close to God, you shall become pure. That's the verse they're talking about Yom Kippur. We say that the reason why we're around for so long is because of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the element that enables our, us to be around forever. And this, I think, because it's before Yom Kippur, I think we, I'm going to want to throw in this idea. How so? What about Yom Kippur is so special? So the Talmud tells us, this is Talmud and Sota, Talmud says that the Almighty does not exact retribution from a nation until it's filled its fill. So until it's, it's filled its fill. How, what does that mean? It means that as a nation accrues more sin and the sin is at the verge of becoming permanent, once it reaches that level of permanence, then God's, God destroys that nation. So you think about the mighty empires that were around for, for so long and they seemed to be uh, invincible. If, someone, if you looked at the Roman Empire uh, 2,000 years ago, if you, just, you would predict how long it will be around for, you would say, it's going to be around forever. This is, move aside 1,000-year Reich. This, this, is not, this is not going nowhere. It was that dominant. And, but 500 years later, we see it was gone. Gone. Nothing left. Because there's a certain point, in, this in Jewish philosophy, we say there's a certain point in time where a certain nation has a, has a certain fill, a certain quota of sin. That's how much it can handle. Once it passes that line, God uh, exacts retribution and they're gone. They disappear. The Jewish people were also a nation. We're also a nation. And we also have a quota that if we reach that point in time, we are liable to be, we are liable to be, uh, to be destroyed as well. 
But we have Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day of, 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 for, of forgiveness. It's a day of atonement. It's a day of purification. It's a day where all our sins, mm, back to zero. It's like when you play those games and you have like the power. Mm, yeah. And the power is going, right? You know, like Tetris. And, right? it, mm, back to zero. You start from fresh. Like when you, I, I, I don't play Candy Crush, but I used to play uh, Bejeweled. You know, yeah, and you're like, running against time, yeah, and then yeah. when you get a big crash, zzz, back to zero. That's what like your tipper's like. <laughs> and because of that, we are always granted a reprieve for another year. So I think for us, it's an idea of Yom Kippur. Like we think of it as just being a day where we have to be in shul. It's very long. It's schleppy. You got to fast. It's you know, it's a hard day, but it's also the day that's the key to Jewish continuity. There's no other nation has that. No other nation has that exactly. So it just gives us an insight of what Yom Kippur is all about. Yom Kippur is the day where our sins back to zero, <laughs> purification, and that's why we should be delighted. It's the happiest day of the year because us as individuals, but also Jewish people as a community, we are granted a fresh slate. A fresh perspective. It's clean. We're clean. And that's why we're still around. Because there's no justification for God gave us Yom Kippur to ensure that we'll be around forever. Back to the Torah. I want to do this quickly because I want to finish this before next week. Everyone's fine. If anyone wants to leave, please, please. If you don't need to leave, please leave. Not not, not making anyone out because I don't want people to not come. Like I said last week, if, if, if this says, oh, I don't want to leave because of the rabbit thing. So I'm not, you know, I have to leave at 8, at 8.40. Yeah, I'll just find this vineyard so I have <laughs> <laughs> Nice callback. So please, if you have to go, I'm, I'm not at all offended. You listen to the rest of the class online on, on the website, rabbitwalby.com. The Torah makes another prediction, and once again, another prediction, and an event that actually happened, and we could see that prediction came true as unlikely because it's never happened in history before, and the author of the book went out on a limb to make some prediction because it's a very unique event that has only happened once in history. The Lord your God will undo your captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the nations amongst whom the Lord your God has scattered you. So remember we were talking about the scattering earlier? We brought two verses about scattering. Now we're undoing that. If your outcasts will be at the utmost parts of the heaven, from there will the Lord your God gather you, and from there he will fetch you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. And you will possess it, and he will do you good and multiply you more than your fathers. We are told that we are going to be scattered from Israel. We're going to go back to Israel. We're going to possess Israel. The Torah foretells the Jewish people reestablishing sovereignty of Israel. An event that has never been ha- happened before. And for us, it happened twice. It happened once when we were exiled by the Babylonians. We came back to Israel and reestablished uh, sovereignty. We reestablished the temple. In the year 70, the temple was destroyed. The Romans just kicked everyone out of Israel. They renamed uh, Jerusalem was the first Judenrat city. It was a city devoid of Jews. They renamed it Elia, uh, Eliana, uh, Capitolina, I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, I think Elia or Eliana. I don't remember exactly. Eliana. Thank you. And they minted coins with the with the with the woman sitting forsaken and barren. And they made it into a city for Zeus and for Jupiter and all the Jews that were left in Israel were all the way in the north in the Galilee. There was no Jews anymore in Jerusalem. The vast majority of Jews were either destroyed or killed or slaughtered or executed, or the rest of them went to Babylon. Gone. The Jewish people were gone. Sovereignty of Israel. They actually, the Jews reestablished sovereignty during the times of Bar Kokhba for three years. 
Also, something that only happened once in, in the 500 years of Roman history, only once did the Romans, uh, did a nation that was uh, that was conquered, did they reestablish sovereignty? That was only for three years. And that's it. And over millennia, you know, Israel was part of our conscious, part of our national conscious. It was part of our yearning, it was part of our prayers, but there were no Jews here. Some people tried to establish in the 12th century, 13th century, after the uh, the disasters of the Crusades, the Muslims and the Christians fighting over it for a couple hundred years. Some people did try to come, uh, but there was no real. There's nothing really going on here. And if you went, if you came to Israel in the year 1800 or 1850, the place was dead. It was empty. It was barren. There was nothing going on there. There's a famous letter, by the way, of Grudelet of Mark Twain when he visited Israel. Oh, Grudelet. Yeah. Either way, if someone told you in 1848, right, 1848, the same year that, what else happened in 1848? The, the Congress of the Jews. 250,000? Well, one year. I think the, I think the um, Communist Manifesto was, was published. I don't know why that's the suggested readers that we said either way if someone told you in 1848 that in a hundred years from now the <laughs> Jews will reestablish a state in Israel people will think you're you're absolute crazy you're, 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 you're nuts there was nothing going on in Israel it was, it, it was the furthest place from, from, from any habitable society nothing going on there but we see it happened you know I think even 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 50, 50 years later, it was a dream. Zionism was a dream. It was, it, it was a dream like, uh, like us you know, sending humans to live in Mars. It was, it was outlandish, right? Some people have this dream. You know what? Maybe we could do it. We could build suits and we can import oxygen. It's a dream. It's, it's a myth. You know? But the Torah foretold and it happened. An event that has never happened before in human history. It's never happened. Show, show, me, the, show me the people that they were exiled and came back. The Torah foretold it. We, we read it here. It's in Deuteronomy. It's been there for, year, for, for millennia. So once again, we see predictions that a human author right, could not have made. Mm-hmm. These are predictions that are so bold, so audacious, right? And we, and we have yet to see something that... We have yet to see a mistake. There's another important point, you know. We talked about the Yemenites. The Yemenites came to Israel and they brought their Torah. And the Torah was identical, you know. In truth, you have to say actually, you have to give a little disclaimer that the Torah, the the the, the Jewish Torah, is much bigger than the Gentile, the 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 the, uh, uh, the the Old Testament is much bigger than the New Testament. But uh, the Old Testament, there's um, the Yemenites when they came to Israel, they brought their Torah. The Torah was, was actually slightly different. Now, I'll tell you is that in Hebrew. Uh, as we we all know, the vowels, the Hebrew vowels, are in dots, right? Dots like nikudot. But in the Torah, sometimes words that could be written without extra letters for vowels actually have the letters for vowels. So, like a, as an example, uh, the word yavo. In Hebrew, which means to come or will come, could either be spelled like this, a yud and then a vet and then an aleph, mm-hmm. or it could be spelled with a vav. So it means the, the vav is the vowel. Sometimes the vowels are actually there in the form of letters, sometimes they're not there. That's what's called chaserot v'yiserot, which means uh, 
chaserot means it's lacking, yesod means it's, it's adding. That, that's, that's an idea. All the nine letters that the Yemenite Torah had that were different were examples of we, where either they had a, 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 a they had the vowel and we didn't have the vowel or not. Very, very minor differences and differences that do not change any words, much less any meaning of the words, much less any actual verses. Everything was the same. Now, that being said, it's probably in all probability that we were right. We, as I say, we as means the, what, the collective mainstream Jewish people. Why? Because they under, undertook many uh, efforts every couple of hundred years to assemble all the Torahs and have a central uh, verification where you get rid of the odd man out. So if there's any mistake that crept up, uh, it was expunged and wasn't, wasn't a passed forward. So where did they get that, that one? So yes, because it was an isolated group, and uh, it, something like that can happen. Remember, you can only write a Torah, copy from a different. I don't want to get too. Uh, I don't want to talk about this because I, I want to talk about it further. Yeah, How do we know? Torah scribes, they didn't just yeah, keep reading the same Torah. Well, no. Uh, the Yemenites, uh, they, they, do they have? To, of course, they had Torah scribes. Uh, that's the thing because they didn't because uh, they were isolated they were able to uh, they continued their make, now we're assuming that they made the mistakes they'll say no we made, we made the mistakes either way um, but I want oh, I want to talk about this but at, 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 uh, and in a future class I hope to discuss how do we know that the Torah that we have today is the same Torah because that's relying on us it's not relying on Moses or God it's it's in our in our hands and are we capable and how do we know that it's, that it's correct but one thing that is striking is the fact that yes all the Torahs that we have today are the same so yes, there are some Torahs from, from different communities that are slightly different, but the differences are so minor that it's just whether or not vowels... And now, it's, it's major, because a Torah, uh, uh, if a Torah is lacking one letter, or even as has an actual letter, it's not a kosher Torah. Yes, so it is major on one hand, but at least from a historicity perspective, it's not so major. Like if we're, a secular perspective on, on, on these differences, uh, uh, we, it seems to be inconsequential. It's like I once saw a book... I was reading a book and I, I told my wife, I said, uh, I read this page and there's, there's a word here that's wrong on the page. So she, I said, let's see you find it. Mm-hmm. So she tried to find it and she couldn't find it. So I said, it's between this line and this line. She still couldn't find it. They spelled California, they spelled it Californbia. Mm-hmm. It's like a certain phobia, like fear of Californians. <laughs> Californbia. So yes, <laughs> all books today have some mistakes. Remarkably, the Torah doesn't have any mistakes, and there's no variant text. And in fact, a great story. The, not to compare, but the Christian Bible, there's thousands of variant texts. And the Christian Bible is only uh, 1,900 years old, so it's half the age of the Torah, roughly. Yet there's thousands and thousands of, of variations. I think the, I think the actual number is like in the hundreds of thousands of, of, of slight variations between the different uh, the different texts. So there's a great story. And with this, we'll finish and we'll move uh, whatever I have here left over. We'll do a quick uh, review and then we'll continue uh, next week, God willing. There's a great story that um, this Pope, so he died. So he came to heaven and uh, said to him, listen, you know, you were a good guy, but, you know, you Catholic Church, they they have they have their things. You guys look the other way, you know. But you are a keeper, you know. So you have something going for you. So before we send you into hell, you get one wish. So he says one wish. Okay, one wish. I want to see the original document of 
of the of the New Testament. I want to see the original one without all the mistakes. So fine, he gets into the little golf cart with uh, with an angel. They drive to this big library. They go into the library, and there's this there's this window, and the window is shedding, setting this like ray of light on this old book in the middle. The angel says, "Listen, I'm, I'm outside. You need me. You call me. Go inside and look." So he's inside there. He goes inside. He opens it up. Angel's outside waiting. Hours. He's reading it. And then Angel's outside. He hears him. The guy starts crying. He's sobbing hysterically. And he walks in and sees the Pope just totally on the floor, just crying. And uh, he says he, he, he says to him, what's, what's the matter? What's, what's going on here? So the, the Pope, the Pope like trying to get it out, like, he says... Uh, in the original book, it says "celebrate." Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, that's the joke. Oh, that's so funny. That's supposed to celebrate. That's the, that's the joke. If anyone doesn't get it, uh, uh, either way. But uh, the Torah, remarkably, uh, it doesn't have any mistakes and doesn't have any like errors, any seemingly errors that normal books have, especially books you know today with the internet. It's it's very easy for an author to verify the information that he's writing, uh, as opposed to in you know, times past, if a human was writing a book, invariably there would be major, major, major mistakes like. Uh, there would be what's called anachronisms. We talked about it a little anachronism last week. You know, uh, it talks about Joseph. Joseph being sold as a slave for twenty silver pieces. We have descriptions of of uh, of, of values uh, for slaves, and we have names, and we have things that are his, that are historically accurate. You know, uh, we find names that are accurate. We find uh, papyrus uh, that have names that are similar to the Jewish names, and we have uh, Pitom and Ramses. And we know today that there was a guy named Ramses, but uh, two two twenty five hundred years ago, how would someone have known that that yeah. if it was a hoax? You know, and the value of slaves was remarkable. They actually found a document uh, that that is consistent with the time that talks about the value of slaves, and twenty silver pieces was. You know, was 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 very contemporary. You know, as opposed to today, like, you know, what do you pay for a haircut today? You pay like what, twelve bucks, fifteen bucks, twenty bucks? You know, but a hundred years well, for men, I'm talking about, right? Uh, tw- you know, fifty years ago, you would pay a nickel for a haircut. If someone if someone wrote a book, if someone wrote a book five hundred years from now that in the year 2014 he went and got a haircut from a nickel, you would know that it's not accurate because it's not timely. You know, that's what's called an anachronism when you have a historical. Uh, um, um, misrepresentation of a certain reality, you know, and there's none of those in the Torah either. None of them. None of them. We, la- last week we read that there was the, we read the New York Times uh, piece where they tried to create an anachronism, but that wasn't true. You know, they tried to create it artificially that, to say, if you guys didn't hear, we heard it last week. I would advise you to listen to listen to the class on RabbitWorld.com, uh, where I link, by the way, to the New York Times story. But they tried to create this reality that Abraham couldn't have had camels. They tried to create this anachronism by saying that they found camels years later, you know, dated to the 10th century before the Common Era, about 800 years after uh, Abraham existed. And uh, the implication of the article was that, hey, if camels existed in the year, uh, you know, know, 3,000 years ago, i.e. the 10th 10th century BCE, they couldn't have possibly existed any earlier, which we, as we said last week, is obviously an insane uh, assumption. 
But we don't find any anachronisms in the Torah. There, was, there aren't any. You know, if you open the Quran, for example, you'll find you'll find uh, where they put who do they put together. Uh, you open up uh, the, 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 in the in the I'm sorry in the, in the Christian Bible we have two very different descriptions of uh, Jesus Jesus's lineage. In the Quran, no, in in, in in Matthew, and I think in uh, one of the other books, maybe in John, I don't remember. It talks about Jesus and it says, "Oh, how did he come from King David?" So it says one of them, uh, it's like twenty generations. One of them is like fifty-five, and different names, and no, like, and these, this is the same, uh, you know. Where did they get the information? I have no idea where they got the information from, but that's an obvious error that clearly, you know, that clearly shows that there's a problem with the document. We don't have any of those errors. Uh, in the Quran, fame, uh, the Quran puts. Uh, I'm trying to remember who it puts. I think it puts Haman with Pharaoh. It puts Haman with Pharaoh. We have Haman, and he's from the Persians. That's 2,400 years ago. Pharaoh, we're talking about 3,300 years ago, uh, because it's yeah. a certain mistake, you know, that that was uh, was uh, was written because it had human authorship. We don't have any of those mistakes. Either way, we find we found today. We talked about just a quick review. Uh, we found very interesting uh, descriptions of the Torah's methods of military conscription, which would make us greatly question the practicality of these uh, of these proposals, or not these proposals, these methods, these methodologies, if they were to be of human origin. And lastly, we talked about an eternal nation linked with a nation that's going to forever be small, uh, few in number, Plus, it's going to be scattered. Plus, it's going to go back to Israel. Multiple predictions that were all spot on, that were all uh, uh, unique, one of a kind, and no other uh, examples of these phenomena uh, exist anywhere else in, in human history. And all predicted in the Torah. Uh, and lastly, we say the Torah has no uh, anachronisms. And it's all the same document, and we'll talk more about that hopefully next week. Uh, thank you all for coming. Have a wonderful evening. And uh, if you guys have any particular issue you want to talk about uh, over the next three weeks and the rest of this uh, series, please do not hesitate to call to email me. Call me. I'll email everyone here the link. And if, you, if your name is not on this list, by the way, um, I don't know if we have a oh, Ruven. Well, we have Ruven. We don't have. We don't have. Uh, yes, yeah, so I mean, we put the email and I'll add it to the list and I'll send the uh, the, the the link to the class or to the previous classes if you want to listen to them you can listen to them but email me if you have any particular question or any area that you want to focus on in future classes and I would be delighted and excited to talk about them this is great thank you I appreciate that yes oh thank you any any questions any questions I want to talk about right now okay thank you all and everyone have a great night stay safe okay guys